Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Shirley Weber, California's new Secretary of State, and the first black person to hold that job. Dr. Weber has an amazing personal history. She's the daughter of an Arkansas sharecropper who was chased out of town by a lynch mob. And she will explain how that experience shaped her life and her fearlessness in politics. She was one of the leaders in the campaign last year to bring affirmative action back to California. And we'll talk about why she thinks it failed and what private companies can do to become more diverse. And of course, we'll talk about the increasingly likely possibility that there will be a recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom. The Secretary of State's office, as you know, will be overseeing it. Are they ready? And are you ready for Shirley Weber, who's gotta be one of the most interesting people in California politics? Here's our conversation. Okay, Secretary of State Shirley Weber, from your home in lovely San Diego to mine in lovely Oakland, welcome to It's All Political, and congratulations, you're you're uh, on the new gig, which isn't as so new anymore, but congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, it is a, It is definitely a change. No no doubt. Well, we'll get to all that um, and, and talk about some of the news of the day, but I wanted our listeners to know more about your background. Um, because uh, it's 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 very unique among many elected officials. You were born in Hope, Arkansas, the home of Bill Clinton and uh, Republican Mike Huckabee. Yes. Your dad was a sharecropper. My dad was a sharecropper, yeah, in Hope, Arkansas. And, and one night uh, back in 1951, you were a little girl, a couple years old, and you had to flee at midnight. Tell, tell us why. Well, um, Back in 1951, my my dad was a sharecropper, and most of you know anything about sharecropping means that you work for someone else uh, the entire season. And at the end of the season, they calculate whether or not you've made enough money to get out of debt from them, because during the season, you, you know, they won't take money from you necessarily. So they continue to keep a running list at the store about what you owed and the, and the, and the you know, what uh, seeds you bought and so forth and so on, and whether or not you've earned enough to basically pay all these bills. Well, as usual, you always come up short because that's the nature of the monster. And uh, in order to keep you in bondage, and it also binds you and your children and your children's children, pretty much like the a modern day slavery system. So my father was always very proud. He never said yes, sir, no, sir, to anybody. <laughs> they always thought he was crazy. And uh, and he stood up for himself. So he knew he had, they were cheating him and he uh, raised the issue again. And um, they got into a confrontation. Um, I think some guy by the name Cal Boyd or something got into a confrontation with my dad. And my dad was always the one who would not back down. You know, he did not. And so they got into a physical uh, confrontation. And uh, the general, uh, lesson, general message around the system was that uh, my dad had become a liability. You know, he was uh, mm -hmm. probably encouraging others to do likewise. And and as a result, needed to be eliminated. Uh, so they were going to make an example of him. Um, and so when they, my uh, his brothers and my grandfather found out, uh, they put him in a wagon in in August of 1951 and wrote and and took him to Texarkana uh, and put him on a train. Uh, my mother's mother had come to California some years earlier, 
And so my dad came and uh, rode all the way to California. He could barely read, but he got on the train and was told not to get off till you get to Los Angeles. And um, and he came to California. Uh, and three or four months later, um, we were all brought to California. My dad worked and saved his money uh, to bring his wife and six children at the time to California. We took a train and we arrived in California, uh, the rest of us, December 1, 1951. And my father was uh, never afraid. And uh, it was interesting because he... Um, we went to Arkansas every four years um, so they could see that he was not afraid. <laughs> you know, he. Um, wow. Oh, my God. He's essentially chased out of he was essentially chased out of town by a lynch exactly. mob. But yet he would go back every four years. Why would he go back? Well, for, so we could know our relatives. So we know our family. Uh, his, all of his brothers and sisters were there. His dad was still alive at the time. And so he went to see his family, but he was not afraid and he was not going to back down. And we never uh, ate in the back of a, of, a, of, of a restaurant. My dad would not pay for food in the front and walk to the back. So we always took all our food. Um, he was very, very clear about uh, who we were. Um, you know, he wouldn't go to outdoor toilets on the road when they had regular restrooms. Mm-hmm. So it was always it was always interesting. And 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 most of the time we, we would when it was time for us to leave uh, after two weeks of being in Arkansas, my mother took a sigh of relief because there was always going to be some confrontation with my dad and some of these folks who did not like him. And he would not say yes or no, sir, to them. So uh, so, yeah, we went we went back every four years to uh, be with our relatives to spend my dad's vacation in Arkansas. Uh, and I was, it was always amazing to me as an adult when I, when I learned how we actually left Arkansas when my older brother was telling us of it because my older brother went with my dad everywhere and, uh, and as a result saw the confrontation was there and understood all the stuff that happened. He said people would come by our house uh, when we were in like a two-room shack, really, with no running water, no toilets, and um, they would come by every night, uh, a lot of them for a while, looking for my dad, thinking he was there. And then, of course, they taught my mother about how this so-and-so left her with all these babies that's just like black men, you know, the whole bit. And um, so when we left, it was in the same way, because keep in mind, they hold you in debt for whatever. And so uh, my mother said well, they they were harvesting something. I'm not sure what crop, but she said they did as much as they could. But they wouldn't say tell anybody what was going on. And uh, that night they put my uh, my mother and the rest of us in this wagon and took us to Texarkana and we got on a train. And um, wow. uh, we could not, they couldn't even tell my sisters, the brother said that they couldn't even tell my cousins where we were going because they, for fear that somebody would do something before we got a chance to leave. Uh, so uh, most of them didn't know a whole lot what was happening until at the very end when they, when they were throwing clothes together and packing stuff and, and where we were being taken out. So it, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and one of the first things my dad did when he came to California, obviously, was to register to vote. Um, he felt very strongly for us as kids at one we should always get an education because he felt he, because he was not allowed to go to school past maybe the fifth or sixth grade uh, because he had to work the fields. He felt that, you know, that was the limitation of him, that he could not uh, really fight for himself uh, in terms of uh, education. He couldn't uh, promote himself on a job and those kinds of things because he had such uh, very low skills. Uh, but he but he was smart and he understood what was going on. And so he made sure that we all got an education, that we stayed in school, finished high school. Most of us went to community college. I went on to uh, the university and uh, and he also registered to vote. He knew that he said they can if you if you can't vote, then they can t- take anything you have from you legally, that they can create laws and and other things mm-hmm. and lose your property, lose everything as a result of not being able to vote. So. Uh, when we came to California, my father registered to vote. My mom did. They voted in every election. Uh, eventually, my mother became uh, a worker at the polls. 
And uh, and eventually, after we moved, we lived in the projects for a while. But when we moved over to uh, a house that my, my dad was able to put a down payment on, uh, it was at that point that our house became the uh, polling place for the for the district. Oh my God! Wow! Wow! That, well, oh my goodness! So you so your your Secretary of State roots are, are go back deep here. Um, so this is so you so this obviously is a, a major shaping uh, influence on your life. I, definitely, uh, I see where your fearlessness comes from now because. Uh, uh, the stuff you can staring down in Sacramento is nothing uh, compared to what your f- nothing compared to what your family stared down. And that's what motivates me a lot. When people ask me about how could you be so courageous, how could you fight the police, how could you stand up to the teachers union, all these kinds of things. I said, you know what? You know, when you're raised in the projects and your family's gone through so many changes, and and you have been basically able to 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 um, rise above some of the circumstances and get the best education California has to offer. I said, what are you what are you to be afraid of? I said, my daddy should have been afraid, you know, uh, but he was not. And so if he could not be afraid with all the obstacles there and his life being in peril, what the hell am I afraid of? I mean, it's just like, you know, what, what can they do? What is, now you, not invite you, you, me to lunch? Were, uh, I mean, you, what, you know, what is it? I mean, <laughs> I, I've always tried to figure out where's the fear of this stuff. You know, these, you know, you, the resources we have. Uh, those of us in the legislature and our ability to uh, to to basically right some wrongs. What the heck are we afraid of? I mean, you're afraid you won't get reelected, but you're smart enough. You had a job. You should have had a job before you got there. OK. And so I've always felt like, what the heck? You know, I mean, um, whether I was at the university fighting the president of the university, I said, my, my daddy did not struggle to get me through UCLA to give me the highest degree that he didn't even understand. When I said, they want me to get a PhD. He said, what the heck is that? And I told him, he go, Hey, let's go get it. You know I mean? That was his attitude. If it's the best, let's go get it. If he was not, if he was not afraid, what the heck am I afraid of? You know I mean? This is crazy. So I, I don't consider myself, I tell people all the time, I'm not a courageous person. My daddy was courageous. You know, to have eight kids and fight for his kids. My daddy was courageous, and uh, my mom was courageous, and uh, I, and and as a result, I have no excuse not to be courageous. Period. You know, that's that's the way I see the world. And just for for uh, for some context on that education, you got you got your your undergraduate, your master's, and your doctorate at UCLA. By the time you're 26, you taught at uh, San Diego State and other universities uh, for four decades, really, uh, until you were elected to the legislature in 2012. Now, so I, I wanted to um, uh, ask you something, and I, and I, I tried to connect with you uh, earlier uh, last fall after the election. Mm-hmm. You were one of the driving forces of Proposition 16, which would have reinstated affirmative action in public university admissions, government hiring, and contracting. Dr. Weber, when, when, the, when this was on the ballot, I thought for sure California voters were going to approve this, especially after the murder of George Floyd, racial justice movement is swelling. Why do you think it didn't? You know, it's it's uh it's it, it was interesting to me, and I'm not you know I wasn't a part of uh, I was a part of the campaign, but not really. I was more a part of the legislative piece that takes it to the campaign people who, who run it. But yes. uh, but I thought I thought same thing. But I but I also realized that we have had a lot of trauma in this country, and um and and we have made some progress, but. I, I I didn't feel that George Floyd's death was going to basically propel us to a higher level of, of engagement and, and and understanding. I really did not. I, I thought for a moment it did because, Cliff, keep in mind, we were in a pandemic 
and people had nothing else to do but look at TV. And so as a result, it became an issue. But then when, but when most issues get, when you really get down to the nitty gritty, you know, we passed Prop 17, which people say, wow, that's really progressive. And I was one of the co-authors on that about allowing uh, uh, persons on parole to vote. But that didn't cost anybody anything. You know, you, you voted for it. You didn't have to give up your vote in order to give them a vote. It was, you know, it was an expansion of the, of the, of the franchise. Uh, the affirmative action piece, people realized that it was, it was really going to reorder some things in America. It was going to create some opportunities for individuals. And not just the education piece, because what's happened with education is we have pretty much kind of figured it out a little bit in California so that the numbers are not as bad as it was when we first started with Prop 209, where, you know, we plummeted down to one person in law school, one in med school, and our universities have become a little bit more sophisticated in their assessment. But when you start talking about uh, some folks thinking that they're going to lose, that it's a choice between their son going to UCLA and your son going to UCLA. Are they big enough and willing enough to make that sacrifice? Mm. Because it's a limited number of resources. And there are very few liberals who are going to give up much of what they have for you. They will expand the franchise, but will they give up their seat? That's the big question. Will they give up their yeah. seat? And um, and so, you know, so when you start looking at it, it, it was difficult. And and even sometimes in our Latino community had had basically been able to to ride the wave and get to 25 percent of the University of California. In their minds, some of them thought they would have to give up their seat as well for African-Americans or whomever they thought was less qualified. So we you know, so it becomes a difficult thing. And I and, I, and when they took the bill up, I was I was more optimistic initially that we'd have some time to do some. Uh, education of people to help them understand and and really to realize that this is not about education. This whole uh, affirmative action really is about business. When you start looking at the number of women and minority owned businesses that have been devastated, uh-huh. it's really about that. And nobody wants to talk about that. So different groups can participate. And and we had tremendous, you know, the chambers endorsed and so forth and so on. The, the Cal Chamber, they never endorse. I mean, that's a, generally a very conservative body. And when I was like, you got the chamber endorsing it. We got the chamber endorsing But keep in mind, the chamber endorsed, but the chamber didn't do anything. Okay. Yes. Uh, they didn't put it on their website. They didn't. They didn't basically give money. They endorsed because it's politically correct to do so. Uh, and there were, you know, mm-hmm. others like that that endorsed. But I told people they endorsed, but they really didn't push it. They didn't push it as a major issue. They didn't. You didn't find them getting in newspapers and other other places saying, you know, this is something good for the economy of California or whatever it may be. So there was there was a lot of lip service to it. Uh, some 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 who put their shoulders to the grindstone. Um, we got screwed up by uh, obviously the the pandemic because we couldn't even get the bill out of our houses until the very very right up on the deadline in July. So right. we, so we, we, we were hindered because we weren't meeting. And so, so there was a lot of things that happened that, that maybe turning around in a different way may have helped. But I, you know, but I said to all of those folks who, um, when I was in one of the meetings that, that, that really believed in, in affirmative action, supposedly, uh, I said to them, keep in mind, uh, much of you, you are still able to do that. Uh, you know, that you can still look at your corporations and say, we need to change the, the narrative here because why you're private, you're a corporation. You, those of you who have businesses who want to do diversity, do it. It's, you don't have to have the government to tell you to do it. Um, and, and, and most of the affirmative action pieces are not mandates. They're suggestions and you can do it and you have permission to do, but it doesn't, it's not really not mandated. And why do you think that doesn't happen, Dr. Weber? Why don't you think that happens? In the corporate world, because it's 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 comfortable to do what you've always done, and you think you get results when you do. And even even we've had 
you know, we've had companies like, uh, I guess, HP and some others who've really uh, taken it on and, and they can tell you the benefits of having a diverse work uh, workforce, diverse boards and things, because they said you actually do do a better product, you make better decisions and you're and the bottom line, it looks better. OK, but it's still, you know, it's still a, a, an America where people want to will their stuff and give their stuff to their kids and whatever else. And so it's a hard nut to crack to say, okay, you can do that. I mean, even, even in government agencies, you know, I go in and sometimes it's all the same people in a government agency, you know? Um, right. and, and, and the question is now you're the, you're the person in charge and, and, and can you bring in new people? Can you bring in different people? Can you diversify the force, the workforce that you see? And so I'm saying to those who, who signed on and say they believe in affirmative action, they believe in this, even nonprofits, you need to then diversify the workforce. You need to be the examples to, to basically say, I don't have to have the, uh, the state to tell me that I can do diversity, that I can do affirmative action, that I can mentor a different population, that I can do those things. And yet those who give lip service don't do it. You know, don't do it, whether it's the labor force, whether it's the building trades or whatever it may be. Uh, I still got to go over to the building trades and say, you know what? There's a building being built here in Sacramento and there's now one African-American on the work site. Okay. And they go, oh, really? Yes. You know, and, uh, and miraculously, you know, a, a few weeks later, some, you know, they'll have five black people working over there uh, and that kind of stuff. And yeah, so, yeah, but you, but you can't go around every work site in California. Exactly. That's, uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so if you yeah. believe in it, and the only reason why I knew about that was because the employees at the state, uh, as usual, come to my office and say, Dr. Weiss, I'm not in charge of you folks. They come to my office and tell me there's a construction going on. I walk by it every day. There's not one black person in it. So, uh, and so then I have to take, you know, take it to the governor, take it to this person, that person, and somehow another it miraculously appears. But, um, but you know, you can't go to every work site. So there has to be a, a, a desire on the part of people to do it and, uh, and to make it happen. And yet uh, all those groups who said they believed in it, now we're, we're faced with the same numbers in, in the city of San Diego in terms of contracts. We've got a new mayor. So people are saying, hey, you got to open this up. You got to make this a priority. And, and oftentimes I've discovered when you make it a priority, if it's in your company and you say, I value diversity, I want a diverse workforce. I want a board that looks like the people who live here or, or something of that nature. It generally happens. It generally happens. And, um, and I really have only, I've worked when I was on the school board with one superintendent who would come to the meeting and say, you know what? We have, we run the largest school district in the, in the, in the second largest in the state. And we, I don't have not one Asian person on my leadership team. I need an Asian on my leadership team. And people look around and go, oh, okay. And miraculously, there, the, you find a, a brilliant Asian who's been in our system forever as a principal of the schools, and they become one of the assistant superintendents. But that's because, you know, this guy valued diversity. He said, we don't make good decisions when it's all of, all of the same in the room, whatever the same is. If it's all men or women or white or black or brown, we need a diverse uh, conversation in order to make a better decision. And so I'm saying to people who believe in affirmative action, you need to diversify your workforce. You need to do that. And, um, you know, I'm even beginning to do some things like that at the secretary of state's office to make sure there's diversity and all the stuff that we do, because there are some people who are, you know, who, who work very hard and do an excellent job and never get considered. So, um, I, I know that the young people are looking at it and, and considering affirmative action again and whether or not they're going to focus on uh, university or focused on business. Uh, business is the most glaring era that we have 
in 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 the state because the numbers of uh, minority and 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 the my, and women owned businesses that are doing business with our our government is uh is abysmal. You know, Los Angeles is just uh I think they told me there's 2% Latinos and 2% women in the city of Los Angeles. Uh wow. that that's ridiculous given the diversity yeah. of Los Angeles. Absolutely. And, you know, so we we've got to do better. We've got to do better. We'll be back with more of our conversation with California Secretary of State Shirley Weber right after this short break. And now, here's more of our conversation with California Secretary of State Shirley Weber. Okay, let's talk a little politics. I, I got a, a bunch of questions for you here. Um, looks increasingly like, like there's going to be a recall election of Governor Newsom. Uh, I know there's many steps to be had, but the, the, the signatures are coming in. Your office still has to check them. What will be the state's biggest challenge in running a recall election? And is California prepared to do it? Well, I think the the biggest the biggest uh, uh, challenge may be the time factors and and you know the timing that you have to put in to get uh, to basically meet all the deadlines that are coming in and, and verification. Um, uh, and so we may look. Time is going to be a variable, and we're looking at that. Uh, if if the, if all the stuff qualifies, we're looking to, at the time issue. When can we best do this? They have to allocate resources to get it done. So we've there are a number of steps to get it, get to that. I mean, uh, I won't say the easiest part is, is, the, is the voting part, but but clearly we have to. Um, the the virus is still present in terms of trying to do things safely. Uh, and that's a big issue. Um, but, you know, getting getting verification of, of the signatures and making sure we do a very good job of doing that is going to be uh, the challenge that we face. Um, and because it'll be up to the people to decide exactly what they're going to do about recall and the campaigns and various things like that. Uh, but we're working hard to make sure that the, the numbers will be a report out probably today. Uh, that the numbers are are accurate. I'm, I've got a report that's here that I've got to go over, and that the numbers are are correct, and uh, those kinds of things, and that we have the resources. Uh, that's a big challenge. Um, running an, a, any kind of campaign uh, is expensive, and especially when it wasn't one that was not budgeted for. Uh, and so the the legislature will have to provide resources to make it happen, and hopefully, because it may be done uh, outside of a cycle. I mean, we don't have any elections, statewide elections occurring this year. And there's still a chance it could be consolidated with next spring's election, correct? It is possible. We're looking at that. That may happen uh, in order to um, uh, cut down some of the costs. But there are some statute, there's some limitations that we have to uh, whether or not we can do it and hold it up that long. I'm not really sure. Uh, it may end up in court with folks discussing it. So, uh, but I think the biggest issue would be obviously getting money to run the election. How much would it take? Do you think? I, I don't know. They haven't put a price on it yet. They have not okay. put a price on it, and only after after all the signatures are done, then we go to the legislature, and and okay. and with their their finance people to talk about it. So, you know, the hope is if we don't have to do it, why do all that other work in advance? Uh, but there's a time frame for that, and I'm sure they know. They just haven't discussed the cost factor because I guess they don't want that to interfere with people uh, signing or not signing. You know, right, right. Yeah. So now, as you alluded to, you spent much of your career as an education reformer. You've often butted heads. One of the few Democrats that butt heads with the California's powerful teachers union. This week, the legislature, when we were recording this, proposed a plan that would give schools access to $12.6 billion if they adopt a plan to reopen by no later than April 15th with strict masking, social distancing, students and state, you know, uh, Governor Newsom said the plan is a, quote, a step in the right direction, but it doesn't go fast enough or, or far enough or fast enough. What do you think of it? 
I haven't looked at it very much because I've been swamped with recall. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're too busy counting and verifying those you know, signatures. I, 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 yeah, I I've been kind of swamped with recall and politics of that. Uh, so I haven't really looked at it, but but I do know as as um, you know that uh, as a, a mother, but more importantly as a grandmother of kids who are in school. Um, you know, going to school is very, very important, and we have uh, been battling it for, and none of us thought that we'd be out this long. So as people complain about, you know, we need our kids back in school, we need our kids back in school, they're absolutely correct. And, and I don't blame anybody for not sending, for, for taking them out of school, because if we hadn't and a bunch of kids had died, we'd be, we'd be even more upset over the fact that we exposed our children unnecessarily to this uh, pandemic. Um, so, you know, I, I think what is what what needs to happen is uh, and I think they've laid out some some standards to get make that happen. And um, and and I, I'm optimistic that we will get our kids back before June. And I'm hoping that that it works, that the, that the resources that we need, the question is resources, the resources we need that we can safely put our teachers back as well. You know, no, nobody wants to put uh, teachers in, in harm's way. And um, with regards to kids who can also carry the virus and and my daughter's kids have been in school and then they all got taken out because people somebody had a birthday party and blah, blah, blah. And somebody got infected uh, and, yes. you know, and that whole bit. And so, you know, we've just got to be more vigilant about it and uh, and get the job done. And obviously, the more folks that are getting vaccinated, it's wonderful. Uh, because then we can even have greater numbers of folks who who can basically can uh, be a part of the school and work in the school. But it's it's a, it, it's a task, and and getting people to take it seriously um, is is a real concern. And so I I have lots of friends who are principals and uh, and teachers. And one the other day had to take everybody, a whole group of people out because the janitor knew he was positive, but he felt he had to go open the school for the kids. I mean, you know, one of those kind of things. And she's like, what? You know, and so uh, a, a whole bunch of people who came in with him uh, who were in the offices and what have you had to be taken out. And so I said, people need to understand it's pretty serious. OK, so you can't have COVID and go to work. You just can't. Um, so. Um, why is, why is it why do you think it's taken so long to open the schools up? Is the teachers union being too cautious here? Is, have, have politicians been uh, too cautious? What's we haven't been able to vaccinate anybody, okay? And um, and in addition to that, you know, uh, they're not the only ones shut down. <laughs> Keep in mind the legislature shut down pretty much. You you go down to the Capitol yeah. and it's like a, walking through uh, what I call the Day of the Dead because you got papers in offices and desks that still sit up that look like somebody was there yesterday, and all the people are gone. There's a cheap joke I could make here, but I won't. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I understand what you're gonna say. You know what I was gonna say there. Okay. But, but uh, you know, I, I don't know if we. Uh, you know, the question is, are we too cautious? And some might say yes, but then when those who've lost loved ones in the process of this are probably saying no, we should have been more cautious. And every time we look like something is turning in a direction in the legislature at the Capitol, we end up with somebody else on our team, a uh, staff person who's died or been ill. We've, you know, we've had all of that happen on a, it's almost a statement that comes out every day when I was in the, in, in the assembly of that. You go to the secretary of state's office and we can't have more than 20, 25% of the people in the building. On my floor, on the sixth floor, we can only have one. Okay. And um, so we're at minimal capacity. And I think, you know, I, I just don't think we're ready for the 
we were not ready for the long haul. Most of us who left in March said, well, in three weeks, we'll be back. This will be nice, we said. Somebody said, oh, this is nice because we have a extra uh, long uh, Easter break or whatever. And then it got longer and longer. And I don't know, people didn't take it seriously initially. And some people still have never taken it seriously. Mm. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, when I, it, you, my, my, one of my friends who live in one of the suburbs north of uh, San Diego said, you know, in that community, they don't wear a mask at all. You know, and so even though the sign on the door says wear a mask, when people go visit her, they go, I mean, in the stores, people are just still strolling around without a mask and um, and, and not believing I, that I, it's I true. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. So uh, sometimes I've had my Republican colleagues who say, well, we need to get our kids back in school. When are we going to do that? I said, when you wear a mask, when you socially distance and you wash your freaking hands, that's when we're going to go back to school. I mean, because these are folks who even in the Capitol will jump, will come try to get in the Capitol without a mask on. And we said, no, you know, they will be the ones who get in the elevator and want to jump in the elevator with you without a mask. No, you can't. And then go down. And as soon as they get downstairs, they take the mask off. Are they all, uh, so where are you guys? We're all going to dinner. How are you going to eat with a mask on? I mean, you know, so there are a lot of folks who still have not taken it seriously. And, uh, we, you know, we had, the, we had the outbreak of folks in the Senate at the end of the last session. Um, you know, they were going to meet anyway, even though everybody else is meeting virtually. They met in person. So all of them got quarantined and they got mad be- at us because they were quarantined. You know, it's just it, it, so it never ends. And so yeah. we are, I'm hoping and a lot of them say they're not going to take the shot either. So whatever. Right, and that's that's scary. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your office. Last year, uh, we saw California. We went to vote by mail. Uh, what other reforms are you going to be working on, and and uh, for the rest of uh, your term, or uh, that uh, the next couple of years that you have? And and also, how do you increase voter participation in communities of color, particularly the Latino community? Well, you know, wow, that's a big one. Um, you know. One of the things that we did do and, 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 and we're looking at now is that, of course, you know, California had 80 percent turnout, which is unheard of in California. Yes, we, we would pray for 40 and 50. We can we'd be dancing the street at 60. OK, so 80, we're probably stunned. But but um, but I think and, and we looked at that. And part of it is, of course, when you have an issue like what's going on in Washington, everybody's going to show up because they want to change. They want to get this, get that done. And that's fine. Um, but in addition to that, um, uh, we made voting much more convenient for people this time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we, people have been saying this forever and we've passed legislation to make it happen, the Voters' Choice Act. And, but very few people took it up. Very few people wanted to do it. They claim it was too expensive. They didn't want to spend the money. And, um, and so uh, we we had the we had the systems ready to go, and we knew what to do. And some place some places in California had already begun doing it. And so I think it showed us that people will vote when they have not only issues to vote for, but equally important when it's when it's convenient. You know, it's not one day out of the whole month, the other whole year that you can go between a certain period of time, and that's it. Okay, people right. now can vote from. Uh, you know, 11 days ahead, four days ahead. They can either, yeah, they get their ballots, they can fill it out, they can mail it in, they can walk it in, they can take it to a, a voting center and drop it in the box. It's it's a lot of flexibility. And we saw that because so many votes came in in advance and it wasn't just a one day experience. So I, I think we're going, we're, we're going making, making every effort to continue to do those things because that really speaks to the people of California, that it's a sense of convenience. And we've been saying this for the longest with, um, with, looking at Colorado as a, as a, as a, as a model for us. And Colorado's, uh, I guess, it, um, uh, was over 90% of their folks voted 90 some odd percent. I was in a meeting recently. And so, you know, they're almost perfect in terms of getting those who are registered to vote to vote. So one of the things, a couple of things we want to do is one, 
we do want to continue the options, the choices. People want choices. And so uh, everybody's looking at that now. And, and hopefully through some level of legislation, we'll be able to provide uh, 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 the mandate that all of these things have to happen at a minimal level, in terms of whether it's 11 days or four days. But people have to have more than one one shot at voting, basically. Uh, so we want to we want to do that because that proved to be very successful uh, in that. Um, want to make sure that those who are eligible vote can vote it. And one of the things we've discovered, of, of course, after Prop 17, to try to make sure Prop 17 is implemented, we're looking at getting uh, roles of folks who are on parole, making sure that our parole officers have the necessary information and people get this information when they're when they're released from prison after serving their term that they have the right to vote, if not registering them immediately there to register to for them to vote. Uh, so we want to make sure that, that that is expanded, that it's not just lip service that we pass a law and that somebody has to figure out what it really means and how do you implement it. Uh, so we, we are working on some guidelines now with uh, CDCR and some other places to make sure that uh, those who have the right to vote are informed that they have it because there's a lot of misinformation about it. And uh, and people, some people pay attention to the bills that we pass and the laws and the propositions. Some don't, you know, when it did it really pass or did it not? So we want to make sure people know that we want to basically emphasize that. Uh, one of the things that we have to do is that we have to really engage in civic education and um, help people understand what happens when you vote and what happens when you don't vote. And help them to yes. understand a sense of democracy. I, you know, before the June, before the January 6th event, I was, I was in an interview and I said, you know, our democracy is rather fragile. And people thought I was being very critical of, of it. I said, no, it, anytime you're involved in a democracy that really relies upon people and the goodness of people, not martial law, but the people, it is fragile because people are fragile. OK. Mm -hmm. And uh, and unless they are well grounded and understand what a democracy is and don't get confused with the economic theories of communism and socialism. You do you understand what a democracy is, the right of the people and 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 help them to understand that and then engage them in some way of, of participation. Um, it, we will find ourselves always in, in, a, in a position of not understanding and people up and down in terms of their participation in the politics. So I've been uh, talking with the superintendent and some others uh, and want to talk about civic education, helping people to understand this this democratic enterprise that we're involved in, what it means and and how long it takes. And then to understand the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because people are so confused by that and the voting right challenge that exists still today, because, you know, people talk about things like, well, we need to have voter ID, so forth and so on. All that stuff sounds good, uh, but if it's almost like literacy tests. We need to make sure that everybody who, who votes can read. That sounds good on the surface yeah. until you start implementing it. And you realize for me to read, I have to recite the U.S. Constitution. For you to read, I need to ask a question, what is your name? <laughs> you know, and you, Right, right. We, we've been down that road before. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not good. That's literacy by somebody's definition. So we have to be careful. It's kind of like people say, well, you have to have a, a, a valid ID. And one of the ways you become a, get a valid ID is that you have a, uh, what do they say? You have a, a, um, a gun a registration. Driver's license. Oh, a gun registration. Yeah, well, in Texas, you can do that, right? You right, had yeah. your gun registration. You think gun registration, you know, that means, you know, so it's really kind of bizarre in that sense that, um, uh, and so we have to be careful in, in hearing these things and not understanding the rationale behind it and just understanding the history of voting in California. I mean, in California, but all across the nation, those who were denied to vote, what that meant and how they did it and so forth and so on. So, um, so it becomes important. So we want to engage in civic education. And a lot of folks are really excited about that. And we've going to hopefully spend some time working on a really good curriculum that will engage uh, young folks and older folks as well. 
uh, in understanding uh, what this voting enterprise is all about, what this democracy is about, what these three branches of power, how we have have a check and balance system that we should have that prevents what happens what happens <laughs> this past year in terms of uh, you know not all of the all of the basically the agencies of the three arms of government basically working together to um, to check each other to make sure that each one each one of them uh, was doing their job. So we want to do we want to do some of those things in terms of voting. That's that's our main uh, one of the main things we do. But in addition to that, you know, California has amazing archives and I'm in charge of the archives. And so which is good because uh, I hope to be able to. And we've been talking already to really have a, a, a number of programs that highlight our archives so people can see the resources that are there and learn a little bit about California history and, and the diversity of the history. And, and I'm just, I continue to be amazed at how many people know so little about California who live in California. And, uh, and so we want to basically emphasize our archives and, and the resources that are there uh, and encourage people to participate in contributing to the archives as well as taking, going and doing research in our archives. So we want to, we want to make sure that happens because we have an amazing collection of materials uh, that is seldom utilized by people across the state and that don't, they don't even know it's there. And so we want to make sure that people know about the California archives. And so, so we want to do right. some things that they're a little bit different than before. Uh, elections, we're going to look, we will look at this whole issue in terms of business with remote online notary. That's a big issue. And, um, and while I know there's some bills concerning it, what I would like to do much more than just do a bill, I've mentioned to the staff the other day, because there's a bill out there and there's a lot of angst about it and a lot of things you understand and don't understand. Uh, we're looking at doing really some, some town hall meetings on uh, on the remote uh, notarization and uh, and making sure, too, that our small businesses don't get crushed by the lack of technology and the lack of resources they have, that the big companies can come in, the big banks can gobble up all the notaries and um, and all the activity that occurs and our poor one person, one office notary person uh, is lost in the process of it. So we want to try to make it fair so that we don't end up killing off another industry of small business. Uh, Dr. Weber, it sounds like you're going to need more time for this. You're, uh, you replaced uh, now Senator Alex Padilla as Secretary of State. The, the, your term is up in 2022. Do you plan to run for re-election? Yeah, I am. In fact, I'm campaigning. Uh, I should have been calling folks this morning to tell me, but yeah, I am campaigning. <laughs> Already got to better start raising money. Yeah. I'm having a fundraiser next week with Tony Atkins, uh, kicking off the campaign for 2022 for Secretary of State. Yeah, I am. I will definitely do that. Okay. I, I know we've had Barbara Lee on the podcast and she said it is very hard, even for someone like her, progressive icon, someone like yourself, to raise money, it's harder for black women to raise money for office. It's hard for anybody to raise money for office, but it really is hard for, for African-Americans because of uh, the, the, you know, the community they come out of. It's not always a community of resources. That's number one. Right. Um, but, but women have difficulty raising money because I don't know, people don't always yes. take us seriously uh, as, as mm -hmm. fundraisers. And, uh, and so we have to work twice as hard to get folks to take us seriously as elected officials and then to raise the money as well. Plus, you, you know, there are circles of, um, one of the things I tell folks and I try to share with others is that, you know, most people talk about, oh, wow, you broke the glass ceiling. Well, for black people, it's a steel ceiling. And, uh, and, mm. I, and I argue that because, you know, in, in a glass, in a world with a glass ceiling, you, you, you're you down at the, in, at one, one floor, but you have the capacity to look up and to see who's in the other room in the glass ceiling, to see what they're doing and even to mimic their behavior. Okay. A steel ceiling, you don't even know if there is another floor. 
Okay. Mm. You hope there, and and you don't know. You you may think that you're at the second floor when really you're at floor one, and there are five floors above you. You can't see that in glass ceilings. You can see that. Okay. Uh, you can see whether you you know the levels of people ahead above you. When you're in a steel ceiling, you you may think you're on top, and you actually are at the bottom. Uh, and and so breaking those barriers because you're not in those rooms, you don't know who those folks are, becomes really difficult. And oftentimes people don't invite you into those rooms. Um, so it, that's why it's so important that those who have, have been in the, the political arena for a short period of time, mentor and help others who have not, because it's more than just taking out papers to run. There's a whole web of, of support and, and endorsements and all kinds of things that exist. And, and, um, and so it's no easy task, but it's one that we have to push forward. And there's some who do it really well and are able to, to, uh, the raise the money and, and raise the issues and, 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 and get people to do it. And then of course, you know, there's some who may not raise an awful lot of money, but have, uh, but have good reputation. And, and, you know, we've seen that in some elections, uh, I think with, uh, with the controller election we had last time, you know, the, uh, the male truly outraised the female, but she was a person of honor and as a result was elected our controller. Um, so, you know, sometimes that works as well and you'd have to have them both. You need to have both. Dr. Weber, I could talk to you all day, but uh, we, we, my Zoom time is almost up here. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for thank you so much for being on. It's all political. We will talk to you. Uh, we will talk to you again because I know uh, probably during the recall, if uh, it looks more and more likely. So we will talk to you then. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Dr. Weber for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing today's episode. As always, i got to give a shout out for our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you think recalling Gavin Newsom is a great idea or a terrible idea, it's all political. <laughs>